Well, turn again, if you would, to the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, fourth chapter of Hebrews. I'll begin in verse 14 down through verse 16, and then our focus this morning will be on on verses 15 and 16, but Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in the 14th verse. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And let us pray. Father, thank you this day for just the marvelous privilege we've had to worship you and praise thee and glory in thee. Thank you for holy scripture. Thank you for psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We can edify one another and just um, express the desire and the intent of our own heart to adore thee and delight in thee and, and praise thee. And Lord, I would ask these minutes for the help of your Holy Spirit as we direct our attention to your holy word here in the book of Hebrews. I I pray uh, you would help me to convey your your holy scripture, your holy word in a way that is enlightening to our minds and hearts and in a way that reflects um, its true meaning. And I, I pray it would redound to your glory and I do pray it would be edifying and strengthening to our souls as we consider the, the kind of great and glorious high priest that you have been pleased to give us in your son. So I, I, I pray we would glory in the provision that you have made for our eternal salvation through him. So bless our time together, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Lord's Day, we begin to look at this section that begins in verse uh, 14 and, and moves through verse 16. And uh, our minds are reintroduced here to the, the ministry of our Lord as a great high priest. First mentioned, I think, in chapter 2 and verse 17, again, chapter 3 and verse 1. Um, and, and we saw in, in these verses, that is, verses 14 to 16, as Peter O'Brien put it, a hinge passage. Our, our short passage, therefore, serves as the conclusion of one section and the introduction to the next, the great central exposition of the high priesthood of Christ. And also, um, in the context, it provides comfort in the context of judgment. By context of judgment, we're thinking about the import of verse uh, 13. Um, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And in light of that, there, there is the comfort that is found in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. And we notice also in verse 14, there's an injunction to hold fast our confession. And here, the confession that we hold fast to is our profession of the person of faith in the person of Christ, and especially to hold fast to the fact that he is the eternal son of God. Hold fast our persuasion of the fact that he is everything that God has said he is. He is the eternal son of God. And the great motivation both to do that and the assurance that we can is the assistance we have of our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. 
However, at least in the immediate context, uh, this reality of this transcendence of the person of Christ could give the impression uh, that he's a bit aloof from participating in our own lives. Uh, he was here on earth, but now he's gone, now he's distant, and now he's sort of disconnected from our lives. So William Lane wrote a possible objection that Jesus' exalted status as high priest in heaven implied his aloofness from the weariness and discouragement of the church in a hostile world. This is anticipated in verse 15. Jesus' exalted status as high priest might seem to imply that he's far removed from our um, human experience in a hostile world, but our author anticipates such an objection and asserts that Jesus' transcendence made no difference to his humanity, still human. In fact, believers have in heaven a high priest with an unequaled capacity for empathizing with them in all their weaknesses, especially weakness that result in sin. The conjunction for, the word for, is intended to guard against the mistaken inference that Jesus' exalted position as high priest might detract in any way from his ability to identify with his people in their weakness. And, and Philip Hughes, along the same lines, transcendentally exalted though he is, it would be quite wrong to imagine that our great high priest is remote from the realities of our human experience. His involvement with us is guaranteed, as the preceding verse implies, by the fact that the glorified Lord is still Jesus, the incarnate Son, the human Son. His identification with us has not ceased because he has passed into the heavenly sanctuary. So the, the text makes the point that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. The King James translation is, we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. I think this dimension of our Lord's high priestly ministry is a great encouragement to our, our souls, given the kind of world within which we live, given the kind of difficulties that oppose us at various levels. So this morning, I want to invite you to think with me about the Lord as our sympathetic high priest in three different respects. Our Lord, sympathetic high priest in, in three different respects. First of all, simply the assertion of his sympathy, uh, the, the fact is affirmed, and we're thinking of verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Uh, B.F. Westcott, I think, did a good job of kind of summarizing these two verses, verses 15 and 16 together. He says, the apostle calls for effort, he encourages it, let us hold fast our confession, but the negative form of the sentence, by the negative form of the sentence, he recognizes the presence of, a, of an objection, which he meets by anticipation. The divine glory of Christ might have seemed to interpose a barrier between him and his people. On the contrary, the, the perfectness of his sympathy is the ground for clinging to the faith which answers to our needs. The power of Christ's sympathy is expressed negatively and positively. He is not such as to be unable to sympathize. Rather, he has been tried in all respects after our likeness, and therefore he must sympathize with his own experience, from his own experience. Well, noting the force of this assertion, let me give you two or three observations under this first heading. First of all, a little bit redundant here, but the, the double negative underscores the force of the certainty and the glory of this reality. Rather than saying we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, which we might think, well, that's a bit simpler, he writes, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Um, uh, a further statement about the high priest in verse 14. Uh, William Lane writes, the, the writer resorts to a double negative to assert uh, forcefully that Jesus identifies himself with those who feel defenseless in their situation. His high priestly ministry of intercession is effective on their behalf. 
So the double negative um, underscores the certainty and the fact that he is a sympathetic high priest. Then, then secondly, notice the, the nature of this sympathy. It can be defined as a feeling that corresponds to that which another feels, a feeling that enables a person to enter into and impart share another's feelings. So the, the sense is to share the feelings and understand the sentiments. B.F. Westcott wrote it expresses not simply the compassion of one who regards suffering from without, but the the feeling of one who enters into the suffering and makes it his own. And then another author, excuse me, another author um, makes it like makes this point that this sympathy extends beyond the sharing of feelings. It always includes an element of active help. And I think a good illustration. I'll just read this to you from, <coughs> excuse me, Luke chapter ten. Um, a, a very powerful example of this element of active help is these words from our Lord. He said a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. He came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii and, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy upon him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So we see here this, this element of active help, which is a part of this sympathy. And just a bit of elaboration here from John Brown. To be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, or in one word, to sympathize with us, it's to feel the kind of interest in us which can only be felt by a person who's experienced the same or similar afflictions and which naturally excites a desire to relieve us. It is, is a pity, but it's something more than pity. It's, that which a, um, it's the pity which a man of kind affections feels towards those who are suffering what he himself has suffered. Now, says the apostle, we have not a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in the trials to which we are exposed, the belonging to a different order of being, the being possessed of an inconceivably more elevated station, might be supposed to incapacitate or indispose our great high priest passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, from sympathizing with his people in their afflictions. But no, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. This double negation is equivalent to a very strong assertion. We have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He has at once the natural and moral capacity of sympathy. He is both able and disposed to sympathize. The truth is, he not only can be touched, but he cannot help but be touched. The assertion is not, it is possible that he may sympathize, but it is impossible that he should not. Well, then thirdly, and, and closely related to this, he is presented as having the power or the capacity to truly sympathize with his people. It's hard to know if you can move your minds for a second back to the book of Job, how much his friends um, 
really were motivated to comfort him. They certainly were moved when they saw him, his physical condition. But remember Job's assessment of their ministry to him. This is in chapter 16. He says, I've heard many such things. Sorry, comforters are you all. That's his assessment of their ministry to him. But that is not true here of the great, glorious high priest. He has the capacity of sympathy. The term cannot here in the Greek would be dunamai. It means to be able to be or become sufficient to meet a a need or a task. If we consult an English dictionary, we find that there are certain words that are derived from it, such as dynamic, which pertains to strength and power and force, or dynamite, the explosive. It can refer to a dynamo, which can also refer to a machine that transforms mechanical output into electrical output. So words that convey the idea of energy and power. It's used in the New Testament of God's power to answer prayer in Ephesians 3.20, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within him. It's used of the power of Christ to give us glorified bodies commensurate with his return in Philippians 3.21, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And then similar to the import of our text in, in Hebrews 2.18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Then in Hebrews 7.25, it relates to the assurance we have of our salvation in the context of our Lord's ministry as a great high priest, wherefore he is able, he has the power also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. So he has the, the power or the capacity to sympathize with his people. Uh, and this power derives not only from the fact that he is the eternal son of God, but also because of his humanity, he fully identified with those to whom he ministers. Uh, William Lane, in this context, the stress falls on the capacity of the exalted high priest to help those who are helpless. The exalted high priest suffers together with the weakness of the one who is tested and brings active help. So the it's a bringing of actual soul-enabling help at the, at the moment that one needs it. I, I think it's much like the import where Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's, a, there's an actual working in the soul. Or 2 Timothy 4.16, at my first defense, no one supported me, all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood, stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was delivered delivered out of the lion's mouth. All deserted me, he says, but not the Lord of glory. He had sympathy. He enabled me. He strengthened me in the task. Well, fourthly, I would have you notice that uh, the, the need that we have, the, the need that we have for the sympathy, according to the text, it's our, our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So the, the need for this, this active soul-sustaining sympathy is a reality and variety of weaknesses to which we are subjected in this fallen and sinful world. And, and I think the fact that it's in the plural that suggests that there's, there's a wide range of application. Uh, John Brown wrote, we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The word rendered infirmity is employed in various senses in the New Testament. And, and John Owen brings out what some of these various senses are. It's used both in scripture and in Greek authors for any weakness or infirmity of body, of mind. Frequently bodily diseases are expressed he says sometimes it expresses the weakness of the mind or spirit, not able or scarcely able to bear the difficulties and troubles that's pressed with all, 1 Corinthians 2, 3, 
Weakness in judgment, Romans 14.2. Spiritual weakness as to life, grace, and power, Romans 5.6. So this word is used to express every kind of weakness that does or may befall our natures with respect to any difficulties, troubles, or perplexities that we have to conflict with. And whereas it is here mentioned generally without a restriction to any special kind of infirmities, we may justly be extended to all weaknesses of all sorts that we are upon any pressures may be sensible of. So it does suggest it has a wide range of application. Now, having said that, um, in, in the immediate context of Hebrews, it, it seems to me it especially has application to f- two forms of weakness. One is man's moral weakness, his residing temptation to sin. You know, the rest of the verse indicates why Christ is a great high priest. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted because he also was tempted yet without sin. He, he never succumbed to the enticement to sin. In, in chapter 7, verse 26, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Therefore, when we're tempted to sin, he especially at that point in time is able to come to our aid. And and also, I think in the context of the book of of Hebrews, in terms of weaknesses, it's especially um, those sufferings that are related specifically to being a Christian directly because one is in Christ in this world, which I think that's a great comfort to our soul because the Bible makes it clear all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So it's inevitable that one who lives for Christ in a world that's in rebellion against him is going to suffer some level of affliction based upon that fact. And so, um, what author puts it like this, here it seems obviously used as equivalent to afflictions and probably has a direct reference to afflictions undergone in consequence of a profession of the Christian faith. Our infirmities, there are our afflictions, especially such as arise from our being Christians. So in the first place, we, we have an assertion of our Lord's sympathy. We're the fact of his sympathy. Secondly, this is going to sound like I'm making the same point, but I'm really not, so kind of give me a second here. The assurance of his sympathy to our souls. The, assur- the assertion, then the assurance of sympathy to our souls. And I'm moving on in the text where it says, he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Uh, the term translated temptation can be used in a good sense, of being put to the test, so that um, being put to the test, so that one may prove themselves true. Hebrews eleven seventeen by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He had received the promise, was offering up his only begotten son. In John six five, Jesus therefore lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And he was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. But it's used here and quite often in a bad sense of enticement to sin. Let no one say, James 1.13, let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone in this sense of enticement to sin. But each one is tempted when he is, excuse me, tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. 1 Thessalonians 3.5, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor should be in vain. However, this, uh, this assurance of our Lord's sympathy is supported by at least two considerations. One is his victory over temptation is in the context of his 
full participation in the human condition. His victory over temptation is presented here in here in the context of his full participation in the human condition. That was already brought out in, in chapter 2 and verses 17 and 18. Here the text clearly refers to his human life on the earth. One wrote, this capacity derives from his full participation in humanity. The heavenly exercise of his office is based upon the accomplishments of his earthly ministry. The writer will not recognize any disjunction between the, the ministry that Christ performs in the state of his exalted glory from that of the state of his humiliation. The experience of suffering and trials endured during his humanity equipped him with empathy so he's able to support the covenant people in their sufferings and temptations. Well, secondly, his victory over temptation necessitated that he be without sin. It necessitated that he be without sin. The text emphasizes his success in not succumbing to sin. The statement is added, yet without sin. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet the scripture says, yet without sin. This is a comment concerning Jesus' faithfulness. Uh, to the one who appointed him, describes the issue of Jesus' temptations. It indicates why his provision of compassionate help is charged with unique virtue and efficacy. That, that is power to help us in those situations. The biblical reality that Jesus did not sin, um, that has actually been challenged by some, which I found a bit interesting. William Lane, in his commentary, quotes G, the scholar G.W. Buchanan. He says, this does not necessarily mean that Jesus never committed a moral offense in his life, nor that he was sinless prior to his crucifixion, or R. Williamson. How could Jesus in any sense save sinners if he had not fully shared himself in the human condition, including actual participation in the experience of sinning? I mean, that, that kind of thinking. Uh, the, the need for our Lord to have participated in the experience of sinning to save sinners, that is wrongheaded and has to be opposed. For one thing, the text itself says he was tempted in all things, yet without sin. Secondly, the qualification for his high priestly ministry was an atonement without blemish. It was an atonement that, that did not sin. In seven, chapter 7, verse 26, it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins. He had no sin that he needed to offer sacrifices for. In Hebrews 9, 14, it's affirmed that Jesus Jesus offered himself unblemished to God. So our Lord's sinlessness, I, I, I could add, that's one of the most well-attested themes in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It was dependent upon him not having any sin. In 1 John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So that the efficacy and the effectiveness of our Lord's redemptive work required the fact that he was sinless. He wasn't able to sin. He did not sin. Ascribing sin to him, it's unbiblical, and it undermines the entire redemptive progress, uh, the redemptive process and enterprise, which is really the storyline of Scripture, the unfolding drama of redemption. And one who thinks in, in those terms, well, it was okay if he sinned, they really failed to submit to the clear teaching of the Bible, and, and they failed to understand the infinite holiness of God who demanded a sacrifice that was pure and unstained and without sin. I, I suppose one could object and say, well, 
Um, one who has experienced sin and succumbed to it is more equipped to help me. One, one who has um, succumbed to the enticement to sin is more equipped to help me when I am tempted to sin. I suppose one could argue like that, but the fact is, if you and I are being tempted to sin, we want someone to come to our aid who has always been successful in overcoming it. Uh, we, we don't want someone who has a pattern of succumbing to sin to come to help us when we ourselves are, are tempted to sin. Uh, let's suppose somebody finds out, I kind of don't know what I'm talking about here with mechanical things, but help me out. Um, let's suppose somebody wants to, to um, replace the timing belt in his car, so he thinks, I'll save some money and I'm going to do this. And he has a buddy who's had the same kind of car, the same kind of problem, and he finds out his buddy tried to fix it himself, and he was also unsuccessful. That's not the guy that he wants to come and help him out. You want the guy that's fixed it. Now his car is on the road. And the idea is when you and I are tempted to sin, we want somebody that has never succumbed to the enticement to sin. That's what we have with the great and glorious high priest. He helps us in those particular times of need. So we have the assertion of sympathy, the assurance of our Lord's sympathy, and then in the third place, the right application of this. The right application of this, we're thinking of verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive help and find grace to help in time of need. How does one rightly apply this reality to their lives? The answer is by persistent prayer. The term translated draw near is in the present tense, so it's an ongoing activity of the Christian life. The right application, the right response to the persuasion that we have such a high priest is persistent prayer. And that's for four reasons here. Number one, reason number one, the persuasion of perpetual access. The persuasion of ongoing perpetual access to God the Father through the high priestly ministry of the person of Christ. William Lane wrote, the only one who was permitted to draw near under the provisions of the Mosaic Covenant was the high priest, who could approach the altar in the most holy place of the tabernacle once a year on the Day of Atonement. If his ministry was acceptable, the altar of judgment became the place from which mercy was dispensed to the people. In a bold extension of the language of worship, the writer calls the community to recognize that through his high priestly ministry, Christ has achieved for them what Israel never enjoyed, namely immediate access to God and the freedom to draw near to him continually. Hebrews 9 8, excuse me, and following, um, elaborates on this. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot take away the worshiper in conscience, excuse me, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So, so Christ has entered the holy place once for all. So we have, because of our union with him, we have continual access into the very presence of God at all times. Recently, I feel like I've been calling more governmental agencies for various reasons, and it's not uncommon to hear a phrase something like this, your estimated wait time is 90 minutes. 
It's never one minute. It's never five minutes. It's always like your estimated wait time is 60 minutes or 90 minutes. Here, there's no estimated wait time. There's immediate access to God when we need to hear from him. Secondly, it's perpetual access to the majestic and gracious presence of God. The, the, the term throne emphasizes a place of rule, a place where God reigns, and it connotes the idea of majesty and glory. The throne of grace, it's the place of, of God's presence from which emanates grace and mercy to help in time of need. Thirdly, there's assured relief at the right time, at the opportune time, to receive help in time of need, at the particular point of time in which we need it. William Lane wrote that love is outgoing in the provision of protective help that does not arrive too late, but at the appropriate time, because the moment of its arrival is left to the judgment of God. God determines when it's going to arrive, and it's going to arrive, therefore, at the right time, the opportune time, the needed time. Well, fourthly, there's a perpetual need. We receive grace and mercy to help in time of need at the opportune time. And there's a, there's a perpetual need for that. Now, John Owen argues that um, there are various seasons when the, the need for grace and mercy is heightened. These are just kind of bullet points because I thought they were good and you can think further about them. He says a, a time of affliction is such a season. Um, a time of persecution is such a season. Uh, a time of temptation is such a season. A time of spiritual desertion is such a season. We read about it in the Psalms. Lord, why have you hidden your face from me? He says that a time wherein we are called unto the performance of any great and signal duty is such a season, like when Abraham was called upon to sacrifice Isaac. And then he indicates times of, of changes, great changes, and the difficulties wherewith they are attended introduce such a season. When we're going through great changes in our life, that's a unique time where we need the sympathy of our great high priest. Then as we approach the time of death is also such a season. But I would argue, just in closing here, that we have a perpetual need for God's mercy based upon on two perpetual factors of the Christian life in this world. Now this is understanding mercy is a term that presupposes misery. It presupposes misery. That's the idea of the term. And I would suggest that there are two factors that contribute to our perpetual need for this mercy. First of all, a residing inclination to be holy. Every believer, regenerate person, has a residing, ongoing desire to be holy. That has to be the case because we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy. We're regenerated by the immediate agency of the Holy Spirit. Consequently, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are led by the Holy Spirit. We're not to grieve the Holy Spirit. We're commanded to be holy, for I am holy. We're to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. The God we worship is essentially and glorious holy. So there, there must be this desire of soul to be a holy person. The problem is that there's another factor, and that is because of remaining sin, we're continuing continue to fall, fall short of this desire to be holy, holy. That's why I believe the Apostle Paul, in, in Romans 7, I believe that he was a regenerate man here. Remember what he said about himself in Romans 7? Oh, wretched man that I am. This is in the context of the law of sin. He talks about the law of sin. And in, in that context, he says, oh, wretched man that I am. I suppose one could conclude, well, he'd only been a Christian for a short period of time. He wasn't too far on the road to sanctification. Actually, when he wrote Romans, he'd been a, a Christian for 22 years. We're talking first missionary journey, second missionary journey. Probably wrote Romans toward the end of his third missionary journey. He'd been at this a long time, at this particular point in, in time. And he says, in, in, oh, wretched man that I am. 
So he acknowledged there's a kind of ongoing misery because there's a great goal fixed between my desire and my practice. And I would argue you and I are in the exact same predicament. We are in the same predicament. We want to be holier than we are, but we fall short. And the good news is we need mercy every day, and we have it every day. We have it continually through the ministry of Christ as our great and glorious high priest. There's constant access to the being of God, and and there is the communicating of strengthening mercy to our own soul. Shall we pray? Father, I thank thank you for your holy word. I pray you would take what we have considered this morning. Thank you that we have such a high priest uh, who has passed through the heavens, who has completed the work of redemption, who gives us assurance of full, complete, perpetual access to God the Father. And, And we thank you that we can worship you. We thank you for the throne of grace, that we can adore thee because of thy rule and thy reign. But we thank you that we also receive grace and we receive mercy in time of need. And we have confidence to enter the holy place because of your blessed and holy son. I pray it would be helpful to each of us in our our walk with thee and our progress in the Christian life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.